Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about?" You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 94, Wooda. Welcome back to the narrative. When we last left off in 802, the general Logothete, the empire's chief financial minister Nicephorus, overthrew Irene in a bloodless palace coup. The empress was forced into exile on the island of Lesbos, while the new emperor was crowned in the Hagia Sophia. A small crowd protested outside the great church, but the majority of the capital's population accepted the change of regime. Irene was growing old, and had no obvious heir. Most people remained in the dark about the fate of Constantine VI. But those who understood that her son was no longer in the picture had fully expected a man to take her place. The question was just when, not if. So the sight of one of her chief ministers nestling on the throne was seen as a generally acceptable solution. Irene had run a fairly stable government, accusations of prolicide excluded, so most onlookers were expecting continuity with the policies of the past two decades. But they were wrong. Rather than a conservative accountant, Nicephorus proved to be a restless reformer. He would only reign for nine years, but in that time he would be constantly active on every front, trying to improve the position of the empire. This decade is absolutely fascinating for what might have been. Nicephorus seems to have believed that the empire was going places. The Romans no longer needed to fear another siege. They could start to plan for the future and think about reclaiming former glories. He'd seen the books he was better placed than anyone to make that assessment. And in the long run, Nicephorus would be proved correct. The Byzantines are on the road to recovery. Unfortunately, the emperor would end up holding them back rather than pushing them forward. In racing to help the empire reach its potential, he would move too fast and lead the Romans over a cliff. The catastrophe he's heading toward will wreck the stability that the Isaurians spent three quarters of a century establishing, and it will force men to look again to the icons and wonder if God really is fuming over their continued veneration of objects. We're still very much in the dark age of historical sources, so I can't confidently reel off information about Nicephorus's origins. He was born somewhere in the domains of the Anatoly Khan, 
probably Pisidia or Cappadocia, to a well-off provincial family. Several sources claim that his ancestors were Arabs, and not just any Arabs, but the royal house of the Ghassanids, who had followed Heraclius across the border when their brethren seized the Middle East. That was several generations ago, though, so if true, Nicephorus would certainly have appeared perfectly Roman to his contemporaries. He was born around 750. Historian J.B. Berry surmises, based on the age of his grandchildren, that 45 is the youngest he could reasonably have been at this time. But he's likely to have been older, and the one description we have of him says he had broad shoulders, a protruding stomach, and a flowing white beard. It's also tempting to psychoanalyse and suggest that the rapid pace of reforms he's about to undertake speak of a man who knows that his time at the top could be limited. Before he became a senior bureaucrat, it seems that the emperor had had some military experience. He'd certainly led troops in some capacity, though whether he'd risen as high as the Stratigos of the Anatolikon, as one source suggests, we don't know. He seems to have been serving as General Logothete before Constantine the Sixth fall in 797, and was loyal to Irene, even if he privately disagreed with many of her decisions. The ascension of Nicephorus really was a bloodless coup. Her time may have come, but Irene was still a revered figure amongst the capital's clergy, and so she suffered no ill-treatment as she was forced down to the docks. Even Aetius, the powerful eunuch who'd seemed destined to play kingmaker, was not physically harmed. He was relieved of all his palace duties and his two military commands, but otherwise seems to have been left alone. After securing himself politically, Nicephorus then turned to his specialist subject, finance. He'd secured Irene's supplies of gold, but clearly felt this wasn't enough. So he cancelled her very generous remissions, which had affected inheritance tax and trade duties at the capital. Then he cut off the tribute to Harun al-Rashid. The caliph had led the last of his large raids on Anatolia back in 798. Irene had been forced to pay for peace and arrange for markets to sell his men goods as they marched home. This was the same raid when the Arabs had reached Maligna, the permanent army camp on the road to Constantinople, and made off with one of Irene's carriages. Except that since then I've realised that it's not called Maligna, it's called Malagina, or Malagina. And I'm not talking about the Greek pronunciation, which that wasn't. I mean, it's literally spelt differently, and for some bizarre reason, I've had selective dyslexia every time I've seen it. While on this tangent, I should add that Nicephorus in Greek would be Nikiphoros, uh, but like all 11 Constadinoses, <laughs> I'm sticking with the more familiar anglicization. Right, where was I? Oh yes. So for five years, the empire had paid the caliph for peace, and it was a state of affairs which suited Harun just fine. Nicephorus, on the other hand, clearly felt the armies of Romania could once again handle the situation and so he kept the coins to himself and prepared for war. 
Anticipating a large Arab raid in the summer of 803, Nicephorus placed all of the Anatolian armies under the command of one man, the Stratigos of the Thracesians, Vardan Turkus. The troops duly mustered that July, and then hailed Vardan as emperor. Whoops. We're not entirely sure why this rebellion broke out. There had been serious unrest in the army in the previous decade, during the tug-of-war between Constantine and his mother. So it's possible that the men were unhappy that a palace bureaucrat had been elevated when one of their own would make a better candidate. Or it could be that Irene's remission of inheritance tax was very popular, and the emperor's decision to rescind it was not. Vardan was popular and capable, and seems to have been swept along unwillingly as the troops marched on Chrysopolis. We think he was unwilling because one source claims that he announced he would fight to restore Irene, but not for himself. And then, a month later, when news reached his camp that Irene had passed away, the rebellion quickly lost momentum. Vardan's army encamped across the Bosphorus and waited to see if a popular uprising would unseat Nicephorus and wave him across. As August drew on, though, the general welcomed imperial negotiators into his presence and found a way to escape his own uprising. Vardan's safety was assured, and no harsh punishments would be meted out to his men if he set sail immediately for a small island nearby where he would enter a monastery. Vardan complied, and Nicephorus was able to regain control of his armies. The man who led the negotiations for the emperor was a priest named Joseph of Cathara. The same Joseph who had officiated at Constantine VI's illegal second wedding. We will have cause to deal with him again soon. Another takeaway from this rebellion are the names of three of Vardan's sub-commanders. Each will make a bid for the throne once Nicephorus's nine years are up. Thomas the Slav, Leo the Armenian, and Michael of Amorium were all by Vardan's side, and the latter two deserted Nicephorus as things went south. An apocryphal tale told later had Vardan seeking out a hermit, who was known for predicting the future. These three men accompanied him and were surprised when the hermit eyed the group and announced that two of them would seek to be emperor and fail, while the other two would succeed. The rest of Nicephorus's reign is so full of activity that I don't think it would be helpful to tackle it chronologically. Instead, we'll take each area in turn and hopefully emerge with a full picture of the decade. Let's stay in Anatolia, though, and deal with the Arabs first. Vardan's rebellion had left the eastern border unguarded, and the Saracens raided and began smashing down fortresses in Cappadocia. Nicephorus was forced to pay them to leave, which he'd been trying to avoid in the first place, but he did not resume the tribute that would keep them away. With the army's loyalty in question, it would seem like a bad time to provoke the Arabs, but that's just what the emperor did. In 804 he led an army personally, but was defeated by an Arab force that took him by surprise, and he was forced to rapidly retreat. 
the next year, Harun was away in Khorasan dealing with internal strife. The caliph arranged a temporary truce with the emperor, Nicephorus accepted the terms, and then began planning an invasion. Later that summer, his two-pronged assault struck into the caliphate. One raided through Armenia up to Melitene, the other made its way through Cilicia and sacked the city of Tarsus. The emperor also incited rebellion on the island of Cyprus, which kicked out the local Muslim tax collectors. It had been nearly 20 years since the Byzantines had attacked the caliphate on its own soil, and if Nicephorus thought that Harun was too preoccupied to respond, he was very much mistaken. Angry at this betrayal of the truce, the caliph gathered a huge army in spring 806 and blasted through the Cilician gates. One column raided toward Ancyra, but Harun himself stayed at the gates and began capturing the forts around it, including Tyana, Lulon, and Heraclea. He also destroyed other fortifications, trying to weaken any potential Byzantine staging post. The theme armies looked on impotently, unable to tackle a host of such size. Meanwhile, Harun's fleet also reasserted control over Cyprus, sending thousands into slavery. With rumours that the caliph might be about to annex Tyana and build a mosque there, Nicephorus negotiated and once again paid for the Arabs to leave. The bill was 30,000 and six nomisma. According to Arab historians, the six represented three gold coins for Nicephorus and three for his son, a token of their personal submission to Harun. The caliph packed up his tent and went home, but one of the terms of this latest ceasefire was that the Romans were not to rebuild any of the forts which he'd just dismantled. Sure enough, as soon as the Arabs were gone, Nicephorus ordered work crews in to repair them. Quite why Nicephorus was so insistent on riling the Arabs, we don't know. Having been a part of the government for so many years, and possibly a strategos before that, he would have understood military affairs pretty well. So it's a surprise that his strategy for dealing with Harun's giant invasions was to ask for more. The next year, the caliph duly sent soldiers back across the mountains to punish the Byzantines for their treachery. But knowing this was coming, having provoked it, Nicephorus had his men garrison the invasion routes. While he led an army into the mountains to block some passes, the men of the Anatolikon manned the Cilician gates. Both forces were successful and turned back Arab raiding parties, though both sides suffered serious casualties. Harun flexed his muscles, though, and finding himself frustrated on land, sent a fleet to attack the island of Rhodes and various other points along the coast. Given all we've learnt about tangling with the Arabs, Nicephorus's policy is a head-scratcher. To repeatedly poke them with a stick was a bad idea anyway, but as you'll soon see, the emperor was so busy on various other fronts that it seems bizarre that he would want to engage with the caliphate at the same time. My guess would be that he wanted to establish peace on his own terms, rather than those imposed by Harun. 
By the end of Irene's reign, the situation suited the Arabs just fine. We won't attack you if you act like a subject kingdom and pay for peace. For the Romans, though, this was unacceptable. It insulted their pride, it drained their treasury, and it could be used as a political tool for enemies of the imperial regime. So perhaps Nicephorus felt he had to fight hard to get a mutually beneficial peace established. But based on his experience so far, I'm surprised he really believed the Arabs were going to back down. They could easily have continued to attack every year and wrecked all his plans for the Balkans. Fortunately for him, events intervened and he was given the truce that he wanted. The rumblings in Khorasan were no passing trouble. In 808, Harun was forced to march east again to deal with a rebellion. The following year, the caliph fell ill and died. Soon afterwards, his sons began a civil war that would once again leave the caliphate distracted and uninterested in the Romans. Nicephorus was lucky. His aggressive policy could easily have brought more hammer blows down on the empire and cost him his legitimacy. Instead, when Harun marched east, Nicephorus left the Arabs alone and turned his eyes west toward the Balkans. Let's turn our attention now to the domestic front and see what Nicephorus got up to during his winters in the capital. The emperor seems to have been a widower by the time of his coup, but he had two children already, a girl named Procopia and a boy named Stavrakios, no connection to Irene's eunuch of the same name. Procopia had married a young noble named Michael Ragave, and they would go on to have five children together. Stavrakios was about nine when Irene fell and was crowned Caesar the following year. Six years later, in his mid-teens, he was married to a girl named Theophano, a relative of Irene's. Obviously, this helped provide a sense of continuity and dynastic legitimacy, but the choice may also have been intended to foster better relations with the capital's clergy, because of their affection for the late empress. Why did Nicephorus need to improve his relations with the monks and priests of Constantinople? Well, on two fronts, he had earned their ire. One was that he'd repeatedly attacked their financial privileges. I'll talk about the emperor's wide-ranging reforms next week, but remember that Irene had courted the clergy with all sorts of perks because she needed a constituency that she could rely on. And Nicephorus... The ex-logothete is all about removing privileges to make the financial system fairer and more efficient. The second reason that the two sides fell out was over Joseph of Cathara. As I mentioned earlier, Joseph was the priest who stepped in to officiate the illegal second wedding of Constantine VI. As you may recall, the stricter clergy of the capital were shocked by this clear breach of Christian practice and refused to take communion with the emperor or the patriarch Tarasius, who they accused of being a coward and looking the other way. The ringleaders were Theodore and Plato, 
renowned monks whose moral stance had won them the admiration of the empire's true believers. Exiled by Constantine, Theodore and Plato had been recalled and promoted by Irene to run the studious monastery. A huge complex in the capital, with 700 other monks in their employ and four other monasteries under its care. Theodore was therefore the leader of a big religious pressure group in the capital, and clearly felt he was the most suitable candidate to replace Tarasius. When the Patriarch died in 806, though, the Emperor looked elsewhere. Nicephorus was not looking for an eminent but outspoken monk. He was looking for a political appointee. You may remember that Tarasius was very much Irene's man. He was not a priest when he was promoted, and used his political skills to engineer the Ecumenical Council of 787. The emperor wanted his own man, someone he could lean on and use to get his way with the ecclesiastic establishment. Ignoring the recommendations of his clergy, he chose a certain Nicephorus, like Tarasius, a layman, not a priest, who was currently in charge of the capital's largest poorhouse. This Nicephorus is, of course, our venerable historian, who, along with Theophanes, has been keeping us company for the past few centuries. His history, which covers events from Focus's rebellion against Maurice up to 769, may have recommended him to the emperor. It was a sensible piece of writing. It covered the sensitive last century from an iconophile perspective and wisely cut out before Irene had taken power. It showed Nicephorus as a man of sound judgment and learning. He'd also worked for some time as an imperial secretary, so the emperor may have known him personally from the palace. Knowing that Theodore and Plato would object to another layman being promoted to the patriarchal palace, the Vasilefs had the two men placed under house arrest until layman Nicephorus had gone through the process of becoming a monk, a deacon, a priest, and finally the archbishop, all of which took less than a month. Apparently, the Studite monks were going to accept this choice and not run the risk of butting heads with the emperor, except that the first act of the new patriarch was to restore Joseph of Cathara to the priesthood. The Vasilefs wanted to reward Joseph for ending Varden's rebellion, and he pushed through his rehabilitation against the protests of his leading clergymen. Historians also suggest that the emperor was trying to make a point, that he was not bound by canon law, that his will could overcome it, but it's difficult to know that for sure. The patriarch convened a synod which cleared Joseph of wrongdoing and restored him to his position as a steward in the Hagia Sophia. In response, Theodore and Plato and some of their followers refused to take communion with the imperial hierarchy. The dispute bubbled on for a year or two before finally the emperor had the recalcitrant monks exiled and their supporters dispersed to other monasteries. This heavy-handed action did little for Nicephorus's standing with the capital's Christians. 
In 808, a conspiracy was uncovered to elevate the Quaestor to emperor. This was the plot which saw George the Sincellus exiled to Theophanes' monastery, where the two of them would blacken Nicephorus's name. Though this rebellion was easily suppressed and gained no support in the army, it once again demonstrates the emperor's restless desire to get his own way now. Upsetting an influential group in the capital was no minor event. As our interview with Antony Cordelis reminded us, courting political opinion on the streets of Constantinople was vital to an emperor's survival. The catastrophe which Nicephorus is heading toward will soon release Theodore and Plato from their exile. With renewed prestige from his persecution, Theodore will become a major figure, advising emperors and strongly resisting the turn back to iconoclasm. Finally today, we need to deal with Charlemagne, whose ambassadors, you may remember, were in the city when Irene fell. They had come to discuss the intriguing suggestion that a marriage alliance might end the lingering disputes between the two realms. Those disputes revolved around Venetia and Dalmatia, now on the borders of the realm of the Franks. And of course, the small matter of Charles's claim on the title Roman Emperor. Though its practical significance might seem small, the Byzantines knew that there was danger in the Frankish king using that title. They could accept that Britain and Gaul were never going to be reclaimed, but the Balkans and Italy? They were different. To let Charles call himself Roman Emperor made their position in the West much weaker. Irene's flirtation with the idea of marriage was dismissed by her enemies as feminine weakness. So Nicephorus wished to appear strong by comparison. Of course, he couldn't really do anything about it, so he sent the Frankish diplomats home with a letter promising peace and friendship, but avoided using the imperial title. Charlemagne wanted recognition, though, so he wrote back saying he was happy to recognise Byzantine territorial claims and signed it Roman Emperor. He knew that in addressing his reply, Nicephorus would be forced to either acknowledge or reject this claim. Nicephorus decided that he just wouldn't reply. Not anytime soon, anyway. Which seemed like a great idea until events in Venetia forced his hand. Two brothers, Obelarius and Betus, had taken control of Venetian politics and decided to cut the Byzantines out and offer their submission to Charlemagne in 806. The Frankish king had still heard nothing from Nicephorus and so accepted their offer and placed Venetia and Dalmatia under the jurisdiction of his son Pepin, king of Italy. Fully committed to action in Anatolia and the Balkans, Nicephorus nevertheless responded by sending a naval squadron. Arriving in the Adriatic, the Byzantine marines temporarily restored the empire's position. The two brothers switched sides, apparently not expecting the emperor to respond so assertively. The irritated Franks agreed a truce with the Roman fleet, only for Obelarius and Betus to turn coat again in 810. 
This time, the dukes invited Pepin to physically occupy Venetian territory in anticipation of a Byzantine response. The Frankish king duly sent troops to the capital of Venetia, Malamoco. However, many of the Venetian elite were pro-Byzantine and rejected this intervention. They fled to the Rialto, the inaccessible islands in the Venetian lagoon. They were able to hold out there until Pepin died that summer. The Frankish army withdrew, and a Byzantine fleet soon arrived and ejected the troublesome brothers for good. The Venetians elected a new doge, and decided to make a new capital on the Rialto, which of course became the city of Venice. Once again, Nicephorus had chosen the bold course of military action and been rewarded by fate. These missions could so easily have seen Byzantine blood and treasure wasted for little gain. Instead, Venice was back in the fold, and the naval power of the fledgling state would soon come to the empire's aid. Charlemagne was far more concerned with the death of his son, and seems to have shrugged at the return of the area to Roman control. However, he still demanded to have his title of emperor recognised. With Nicephorus refusing to put pen to paper, Charles sent an embassy to Constantinople to offer a formal peace treaty which would surely force the emperor to respond to his imperial title. Of course, by the time these ambassadors reached the Golden Gate, Nicephorus was dead. Next week, we'll get into the meat of Nicephorus's reign. Being the general logothete, of course, he had firm ideas on the finances of the state and the wider Roman economy. He also had big plans for the Balkans, and it's there that his lasting legacy emerges. He could see that if the Romans were going to resettle the lands of Greece and Macedonia, they needed a far stronger system in place than the loose networks of forts which the Isaurians had established. His plans reveal a man of great vision, but sadly, one whose eyes were so fixed on the horizon that he couldn't see the danger right in front of him. If you enjoyed my fictional narrative about you and Alexius and others defending the eastern borderlands, then you can now sample the printed transcript, thanks to listener AGB. I'll put a link on the page for episode 89, or you can go to Ancient Rome AU on Tumblr. The strapline for the site is Because Ancient Rome Needs Fan Fiction. So go check it out if you're interested in alternate historical timelines being imagined and considered. <laughs>